Wow, thank you, Ruth. Our fake pipes up there really make it ring. <laughs> she could even make them seem alive. I'm just going to put my water bottle here down by Jesus' <clears throat> gold and two cases of frankincense that he got this year for Christmas. Um, just want to let you know that our custodian, Jody Rumpf, is going to be joining our church missions team that's going to Cameroon for the first couple of weeks in January. So if you are interested in helping out around the church with some of the custodial work, there's some information in the bulletin, and you can just contact the church office, contact Pastor Jerry, and uh, let them know that you might be interested in just helping us out for a while while she's away. I also just want to mention that uh, Jody's father passed away this week, and so we just want to extend our condolences to Jody as well. Um, Pastor Jerry introduced himself. For those of you that are visiting today and might not know who I am, I am Pastor Steph. I am the lead pastor here, and I'm going to be delivering the message at this point. Carl Barth, when he was alive, wrote a massive theology, about 12 or 13 very thick volumes, and didn't even get through it all. He passed away before he was able to finish his works. And he was asked on one occasion if he could give one line to summarize all of his massive works, what would it be? And Karl Barth said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's been said before that the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, is simple enough for a child to understand but it, it is also a story that some of the greatest minds have pondered, like Barth, over the implications of it all through the centuries. And just because the story is simple for children, it doesn't mean that those like the Barths and others still haven't written the volumes and volumes of the implications of the Christmas story and of the Jesus story end of the death and the resurrection and the gospel. It's not either or. It's not just a simple children's story that is true. And it's not just a profound story, which is also true, but it is both. And in many ways as Christians, we need to be reminded and engage in both. And so this morning, you heard the children's story version of the Christmas story, which is true. But now I'm going to get you to engage your minds as we're going to look at some of the deep societal and personal implications of the Christmas story. And so in order to get us ready for this, I'm just going to ask you to reach the person in front of you and, and sort of massage their shoulders. If you know them personally enough, massage their brain muscles because we're going to be engaging our minds here. So do a little bit of mind massaging right now. If you're not comfortable with anybody around you, just do your own. Just kind of massage your head. Because we got to get the brain juices going. All right. So with the brain juices flowing, here we go. Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned a high school ski lift incident with my brother. I was on a chairlift, we were skiing, and as so often happens, while we were in the chair, it stopped. 
somebody must have fallen off at the beginning or the end or some kind of mechanical thing. And so we were dangling there in the air, and we were very far from the ground. And three, four, five minutes passed, we weren't moving, and so I do what I normally do in situations like that. I start to philosophize about life. And so I turned and I said to my brother while we're sitting in this chair and I was looking around and we saw the beauty of the mountains and the trees and I said to him, how do we know if all of this is real? What if all of this is just my imagination? What if all of this is a dream? And then he responded to me by suggesting that I jump off the chair and find out when I hit the ground if I wake up or not. Now, my speculative question and his very practical response reveal the kind of disciplines that we ended up pursuing in university. He went and pursued a degree in physics, and I went and pursued a degree in theology. So you can even see how our minds back then were working. But as funny as the question sounds, it's actually an idea that many worldviews, many religions embrace. For instance, some schools of Buddhism deny any objective reality around us. Everything that we see and experience is just in our own head. It's just merely our thoughts. If they were asked the question, if a tree falls in a forest... And there is no one around to hear it. Does it make a sound? They would answer and say, obviously it doesn't make a sound. Because if there was nobody around to see it or hear it, then there was no forest. And there was no tree. Because the only trees in forests are those that are in our own imagination or mind. As one Buddhist teacher says, in a real sense, all the visions we see in our lifetime are like a big dream. And so the goal in this form of Buddhism is to recognize that our thoughts are merely illusion. We are to realize this when we wake up. When we wake up, that's what they refer to as becoming enlightened or becoming a Buddha. And when we wake up, then we cease to dream. We're free from our dreams, and that's when we reach a state of nirvana or emptiness or nothingness. So you are to become enlightened and wake up from your dream so that you enter the nothingness. That's the thinking of some schools in Buddhism. Now the the philosopher Plato also took a crack at this whole idea of whether or not that which is around us is real. And elements of Plato's thinking have actually deeply infiltrated themselves into a lot of Christianity even to the way many of us read our Bible today. In Plato's work, The Republic, he argued that the world of space and time and matter is a world of illusion. Reality is the spiritual world. The physical world is a shadow. The physical world is illusion. To embrace reality, we have to get past our bodily world. We have to get past our senses. We have to get past those things that are all around us and gain the knowledge of the spiritual world. And when we do that, then our soul, and Plato defined each of us as having an immortal spiritual soul that is trapped or dwelling within our body, that soul, that immortal part of us is the real. 
And that part needs to escape the unreal world, the unreal shadow body, the unreal physical world all around us and enter into a state of spiritual worlds and become a disembodied spirit. That's when we face reality. And this is all merely illusion. This is usually what many people say today unknowingly um, from the roots of it when at funerals they say things like, well, they've gone off to a better place. You know, this place is kind of illusion, not quite real, not the, the way it's supposed to be. They've gone off to a better place. Or other times when they say, well, this body, that's just their empty shell. The real person is dancing and running in paradise. Those kinds of things that are often shared at funerals are really more Platonic from Plato than they are Christian. But this is what I learned in the church that I grew up in. And I'm sure many of you have thought or heard or even in the church that you grew up in had these kinds of ideas taught to you. And then we sort of find sections in scripture that seem to imply it. But after studying the scriptures and learning to interpret the Bible in light of an Old Testament perspective, in light of a Jewish perspective, a, a first century Jewish or even back into the Old Testament perspective, in the kind of culture in which Jesus and his disciples and Paul lived in, rather than reading it from a Greek philosophical perspective, I've come to largely reject the Platonic reading of Scripture. In fact, the Old Testament is a very physical, here and now book. The Jewish people and the Jewish culture were concerned about this world, here and now. You read the Old Testament and it is teeming with concerns about skin diseases and blood and semen and menstruation and circumcision and flesh wounds and clothes and diets. And this all seems very strange if the Jewish concern was to get out of here into a spiritual place. It's the fact that they were very concerned with this place, as well as Jesus and his disciples were. In fact, their concern was to prepare themselves for God coming to earth. To prepare themselves for God setting up his kingdom here on this earth that he was going to do through his Messiah. That was their expectation. They were not sitting around as Jews in the first century going, I wonder how you get into heaven when you die. That wasn't the concern. That wasn't the concern that the scriptures were written out of. The concern was how do we prepare ourselves for the coming king? How do we prepare ourselves for when God sets up his kingdom on earth and sets things right? And so since that day on the chair with my brother... I've come to the conclusion, based on the Bible and based on this more Old Testament Jewish reading of the Bible, that the Bible affirms this world as real. The, that our ultimate hope and in, in, in concern is God's eternal kingdom, and that this was birthed by the Incarnation. 
the incarnation being what I mentioned last week, God becoming flesh, God becoming human in becoming a baby. It's God's affirmation of creation. It's God's affirmation of the goodness of creation. It's also God's affirmation of the realness or the truth of God's creation. And when we see also from the story as it falls out with Jesus' then resurrection, we see that Jesus has also won victory over the disease of sin that has entered into creation. The kingdom in its early stages is already among us. So last week we looked at how God's incarnation, God's becoming Flesh is good. This week, this morning, I want to look at how this affirms the truth of God's creation. Again, the beginning of John starts. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word became flesh, which means human. We talked last week about how flesh, human, go together. Can't be human without a body. So the word became flesh, human, and he made his home among us. Now when we read that the word became flesh, we need to understand that the Greek term for word is logos. It could also be translated as reason or truth. You could then read this passage as saying the truth that always existed and that was with God and was God, the truth became flesh. Just as God never became sin when he became flesh, because flesh isn't sinful, flesh was created by God as good, God didn't become sinful when he became flesh. In the same way, God didn't become untruth when he became flesh. He's real, he's true, and when he took on flesh, he didn't all of a sudden become a shadow. He didn't all of a sudden enter into unreality. He didn't go from true reality to non-reality. He, the truth, became flesh, which affirms the truthness also of flesh. God didn't become less real, less true, just like he didn't become a sinner. When he became human. So the incarnation shows us that though different, God and his creation are different from each other. Both God and his creation are real. And they matter. Everything around us is not just in our mind. If you, right now, fell over and dropped dead right where you were sitting... Hopefully, we wouldn't just kick you under the pew and continue on with the service. Hopefully, we would actually care and be concerned. But if you did drop dead right now where you are, this would still keep going. It's not just your dream. This is a reality apart from you. Creation exists not because it's in our mind. Creation exists because it exists apart from us, created by a God who is apart from us. God is distinct from us, not like in pantheism which says that creation is God. God is distinct from us, 
And he is the one that created us as well as all of the other things that are distinct from us. He spoke and it came to be. And then through his incarnation, he affirmed that which he spoke and affirmed it to be. Therefore, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it, guess what? It makes a sound. The reason it makes a sound is because sound is created when something vibrates, which causes air to vibrate. These vibrations in the air are called traveling longitudinal waves. And that is what we hear. Those things exist whether you are alive or are dead. Our ears, if we're there, pick up the sound. But our ears and our minds don't create the sound. The sound exists apart from us. Because God and his creation exist apart from us. The incarnation reveals to us God and his character, but the incarnation also reveals to us the reality of the physical created order. Now, you might think, okay, Steph, this is kind of obvious. All this talk, is, well, obviously for some people it's not. There are different belief systems in that. We need to know how we would engage people that think otherwise. But where I'm going to now go with this is what you will discover is that theological beliefs matter. That's why we can have the tomes and tomes of volumes. That because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, has implications about life. And what we believe about God's creation, what we believe about humanity, what we believe God did at Christmas, the incarnation, the resurrection, has huge impl impl uh, implications for how we live and engage sometimes some very difficult issues in society. So this morning, just to let you sort of unpack this more practically, let me give you four examples how understanding that creation matters and that creation is, is what God has come to redeem. And that creation matters for us as humans. How that affects four different areas. There's many more, but I'm going to give you four. Take the first area of transgender issues. Now this is a huge topic. A huge and very controversial topic. Now the old platonic so-called Christian view has made us as Christians totally unprepared to give an answer and to deal with this. We're, we're floundering. And that's because if, as I was taught when I grew up in the church, if my body doesn't matter, if I'm just an empty shell, if that's what my body is, if, and I was, remember being told this in Sunday school, if the real me is what's inside, that counts. Even possibly the real me is trapped inside a body waiting for release. Then why does gender matter? Isn't gender in many ways about body? It's about DNA. It's about X and Y chromosomes. And if our body 
and the real me is so completely separate, if my body doesn't matter, if the real me is what's inside that counts, and my soul could be trapped in my body, isn't it completely logical to say that the real me is in the wrong body? The real me is female. Yes, I know I have a, a, a male body, but bodies don't matter. Bodies are just this carcass that we get rid of when we finally fly away. In fact, bodies are what are corrupted and what are tainted. And so I am trapped in an incorrect body that doesn't match the true me. Unfortunately, because a lot of that kind of thinking has been the thinking, even within the church that we've grown up in, we have no good answer to that. We've become increasingly open to Eastern religious views also in our culture. And when we do, and it has much more of this idea about the real world being the spiritual world and the physical world being not, it opens the idea of a much more fluidness when it comes to gender. It also opens the door to reincarnation. Why could not the true me also possibly take on other forms and other bodies, not just other genders? So the fact that these new age, or I would just call them old pagan views, have been adopted into popular Christianity, we have little, literal, solid ground to stand on. And I mean literal solid ground, like real physical solid ground regarding the transgender issue. Now, fortunately, there has been a lot of rethinking in this in the last number of years. A, a lot of corrective thinking of going back to our roots as Christians and beginning to look at how important body is in Christian theology. There's numerous books I could mention, like uh, Tara Owens, Embracing the Body, Finding God in Our Flesh and Bone. You can get that one in uh, our church library. Uh, James Smith's award-winning book, You Are What You Love. I know there are a few in the congregation um, that are reading that right now. And he's also got a three-volume of much larger extensive tome on that same issue. Or articles that came out this week, like in Christianity Today, editor Mark Galley was looking back at the early American revivals, where we as evangelicals have some of our roots in. And looking back at these early revivals, late 1700s, early 1800s, Mark Galley writes, sinners at these revivals drop down on every hand. Shrieking, groaning, crying out for mercy, convulting. Believers prayed, they agonized, they fainted, they fell down in distress or in raptures of joy. Some sang, some shouted, others clapped their hands or hugged each other or kissed each other or burst out laughing. And then Galley, reflecting on these roots of the revival, says, In its purest form, evangelical faith is a bodily religion. It affects the senses, the body. But then he goes on to say, but too many of our congregations have adopted a bland version of Christianity, more concerned with helping us live respectable middle-class lives than Christian lives. Even when we read about those early revivals, we're kind of like, ooh, it sounds a little bit too much like some of those Toronto blessing things we hear today. Well, there's nothing new about that. That's been going on for centuries, that kind of stuff. There's something about when we really face God that it's not just a head trip. It involves the whole body. 
That's why we read in scripture so many times of people falling down or fainting in the presence of God, being absolutely um, unable to even communicate and speak. It overwhelms their senses. Mark Galley is right, in its purest form, evangelical faith is a bodily religion, and there are many speakers today that are helping us real, re-realize that. Uh, take another example of how the incarnation affirms the truth of creation and helps make sense of this in regards to how we practice our sexuality. I'm going to read something from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul deals with sexuality, and I want you to try to count, I'll make it easy for you because I've highlighted those words, how many times Paul uses the word body and what he says about the body. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So therefore, run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Why is there so much emphasis on the body here if bodies don't really matter? Paul's theology is a far cry from it's what's inside that counts. Instead, Paul says bodies matter, and what you do with your body, particularly what you do with your body sexually, greatly affects you as a person. Because you can't separate the two. In fact, Paul goes even further than saying you are your body. Paul actually says your body is part of Christ. He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, talk about a high view of the body. It belongs to Christ. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's who you are. In a sense, our bodies are a model of the incarnation. And what is the incarnation showing us? It's not about escaping our bodies into God. The incarnation shows us it's about God coming and in, in being embraced into our very bodies. The Christian message is not about escaping bodies. It's about saying, it is no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. Christ has become my very body, my flesh and blood. Therefore, that's why Paul says what you do with your body matters. If God has come and so indwelled your body, what you do with your body matters. Not only for now, but for all of eternity, because it's going to be resurrected. Therefore, Honor God with your bodies. Notice what he says, that God bought you with a high price. What was the high price that God bought us with? He sacrificed his body for us, flesh and blood. Wouldn't it be really weird if God bought our spirits with flesh and blood? Doesn't make sense. So God hung himself in Jesus Christ on the cross, shed his blood, gave his flesh for our spirits. No, he bought our bodies with his body. It was an exchange. Therefore, honor God with your body. 
Well, here's a third example of how a correct theology of the incarnation affirms physical creation. And that is how we respond as Christians to our own health. Neuroscience is increasingly proving how interconnected our minds and our bodies are. That is why, as we saw in the early revivals, and as we see in Pentecostalism today, and seems the other extreme, but there's some similarities in a move back to some more liturgical forms of expressions of Christianity, there's a desire to be more bodily engaged in our worship. It touches our senses. Those of you that know, when you raise your hands when you're singing, your mind automatically begins to feel more surrender. That's why we have to bodily do these things. Some people just, I'm just, I'm just going to wait till I think it. Well, sometimes you think it after you do it. Because we're, it's like a circle. We're all intertwined. When you raise your hands, your mind surrenders. When you kneel down, you automatically feel humility. When you eat bread, as Jesus asked us to do, it triggers our memory. Seasonal colors create certain emotions in us and needs. In the same way with the mind-body connection, uh, you worry too much, you will get an ulcer. Fear can literally paralyze you and lock your legs so that you can't move. And yet there's nothing actually wrong with your legs, it's in your mind. But it physically stops your legs from music, uh, moving. A positive attitude helps physical healing, it speeds up the process. Um, psychological and sexual abuse, or, or sorry, physical and sexual abuse, causes psychological harm. Whereas psychological stress, like PTSD, can cause physical disabilities. Erectile dysfunction can be helped through cognitive behavioral therapy. Deep breathing can calm your nerves. Physical touch and cuddling is essential to the mental health of a baby. I know from personal experience, when I'm stressed, just having my cat snoozing on my lap is one of the greatest stress relievers I, I can think of. Just nice, good book, and my cat just on my lap, purring, snoozing. Just, just that touch with the cat. And they know that. They bring animals into the hospital to assist with the mental well-being of patients. It's because we can't separate the two. We're all intertwined. Look at how bodily sin affects us when David writes this in the Psalms. Because of your anger, God, my whole body is sick. My health is broken because of my sins. My guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink. Thanks for being so descriptive, David. Because of my foolish sins. I'm bent over. I'm racked with pain. All day long I walk around filled with grief. A raging fever burns within me. My health is broken. I'm exhausted. I'm completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. Sin and emotional issues have a direct effect on his physical health. In the same way, listen to how David bodily expresses joy. He says, praise the Lord with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with the lyre and harp. 
Praise him with the tambourine. Praise him with dancing. Praise him with strings and flutes. David is Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the loud clanging cymbals. David is a far cry from Buddhist meditation. From serenity. It's not just all in David's mind. David's not just, in my mind, I'm really excited about Jesus. And I'm at one with the universe. David is dancing. David is clashing cymbals together. David is making noise. And then when David is mourning, he feels it in his very bones. Because David knows that God's creation is real. Bodies matter. It's all intertwined. Let me give you one last example. An example of how all of this relates, in some ways ironically... To dying and dying well. This week I had someone come up to me after last week's sermon and say, How come you seem to essentially ignore and not preach about the intermediate state? Now, the intermediate state, just for those of you that need a definition, is what happens when we die and when we are resurrected from the dead. The resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection, is clear in Scripture. It comes when Jesus comes back at the last trumpet. So what happens when we die and that time in between death and when Jesus comes back? What you'll actually find is that the Bible is relatively silent on this topic, which is part of the point that I made, that it really doesn't make an issue of this one way or the other. What are you in this in-between state? Are you even anything in this between state? Unfortunately, though, I think that a lot of our thinking about this time has become more platonic than Christian, which I think a Christian view is a bit more ambiguous. Our current bodily state does grow weary. Yes, it does die. We are weak. Sin has affected our bodies. Doesn't mean our bodies are bad, but they've been affected by sin. But Paul never put his hope in being free from the body. Paul's hope always was in getting a new body, a resurrected body, a restored body. That he said in some mysterious way is connected with this one. In fact, it could be argued that Paul even looked at disgust at the possibility of being disembodied for a time. Uh, listen to him closely. And I find this ironic because this verse is often quoted to me as proof of an intermediate state. Uh, but when you read it closely, it's pretty ambiguous. And if anything, it's Paul saying, I really don't want that. Again, I've highlighted some of the parts to help you see that. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says correctly, we grow weary in our present bodies. And we long to put on our heavenly bodies. That's the emphasis. Like clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. He makes an emphasis there. That our eternal state, we will not be spirits without body. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. Now hear what he says. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies, 
so that our dying bodies will be swallowed up in life. What Paul is saying there, now, he doesn't necessarily say one way or the other. Do we have a time where we sort of don't have a body? Is there a time that we're just spirits? It's not clear. We know that for eternity that's not true. We will not be spirits without body. But notice what Paul says. He does not say, I look forward to being a free-floating spirit without a body. Paul says, no, it's not that we want to die and get rid of our bodies. That's not the Christian hope. That's not what I'm looking forward to. I'm not looking forward to, oh, there's, this is just my empty shell and I finally left it and now I'm good. He says, that's not the Christian hope. It's not that we want to die and get rid of our bodies. What we want is resurrection. And therefore, in answer to the question, why do I not preach much about the intermediate state? Because it doesn't really matter. And if anything, if there is some kind of conscious disembodied intermediate state, it's not ideal. It's not what Paul was looking forward to. It's not that he wanted. And so what I preach is what the emphasis in the church has always been. I believe, we believe in the resurrection of the body. That's what we preach. We don't know exactly what happens in the in-between time, but our hope is not the in-between time. It is the resurrection of the body. Personally, I just hope we just skip that whole in-between time, kind of like going in for surgery. You know when you go in for surgery, and they, they put you out, and then all of a sudden you wake up in another room, and you're just like, whoa, where did the last five hours go? Here I am. I just hope that's it. I'm going I'm to drop dead someday, and it'll be like a second, and it'll be the second coming and the resurrection, and I'll have my body, my resurrected body. That in-between time will not even be a, a, an entity. Paul says that we want and long for resurrection bodies. Because that is the hope of the Christian. It's interesting to me that the more spiritual, quote-unquote, and platonic we Christians have become about death, the more uncomfortable we have been in addressing it. And so at funerals, we've renamed them. We call them celebrations of life now. And we don't really talk about death. We take on more new agey talking. And we talk about departed and disembodied spirits. So it's just a celebration of life. Of disembodied spirits. Whereas our Christian ancestors, when they had funerals, they stared death in the face, often with an open casket, and they buried their dead and told them to rest in peace because their hope was in awaiting a great awakening by a bodily resurrection. So I want my wife to put rip on my tombstone. Rest in peace because I want a Christian funeral. I'm dead, but death will not have the final victory because the king of kings is coming back and he raises the dead. And when that happens, my rest is over. And I'm going to be with my conquering king. To me, there's so much more realness, humanness, truth, and, and Christianity about that than often the sappy, feel-good, and less human, less Christian ways that we attempt it today. So do you notice how what we believe about bodies, what we believe about incarnation matters when it comes to issues of death, when it comes to issues of sexuality, when it comes to issues of transgender issues, when it comes to issues of health. We can understand how a simple message like, Jesus loves me, this I so know, for the Bible tells me so, when we begin to totally take it apart, affects all of our life. 
It's not just Christians hiding in bunkers, sort of tipping their toe in the world because really we're trying to escape this world into a spiritual world. No, the message is actually a message that engages the way we live life. The incarnation points to a creation-affirming and a creation-rescuing God. As Mark Galley, who I mentioned in the article earlier, said this week, the more we grow up in our faith, the more comfortable we should become with our bodies. Because we will be living for eternity with a body. The goal is not to escape the body, but to align the body with God's will and purpose in anticipation of the resurrection. And when this is lived out, it helps us better understand our gender. It makes us more comfortable with the bodies we have, even when they're sick. It helps us better express our sexuality and our personhood. It helps us better prepare for death and what awaits us in eternity. And it helps us to learn how to grieve and to celebrate and how to worship with all the bodily senses. In other words, it teaches us what it means to look like to be fully embodied human beings. That's who God created us to be. It teaches us what it looks like to be human. And we're going to see next week how the incarnation, not only does it affirm a good creation and a true creation, but also how it affirms a beautiful creation. Because one of the most beautiful things is a human being fully alive to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we could listen and hear and engage with your wonderful good news. And engage with it, Lord, on different levels. Engage on it at a very basic level of the wonderful story of what you've done to save us, but also, Lord, to be able to engage on it on a profound level of how it impacts every single thing we say and do and live. So, Lord, I pray that you will encourage us to be Christians and a church that live fully embodied Christian lives in the world now and in the world to come. In Jesus' name, amen.